0: All right. This morning we will be um, wrapping up a short series. Um, It doesn't feel short. Uh, We've been actually at it for for two months now, Um, but we've been walking through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a letter of correction. They've strayed away from the things that Paul had instructed them in. Um, They had become relatively chaotic, self centered. There was a lot of infighting and division. Um, And one of the major territories where this was taking place had to do with spiritual gifts. And so he takes these three chapters, more time than anywhere else in his letter, to address the proper understanding as well as their improper use of the gifts. And so. He's gone through, he's laid out the um, the big basic idea of the gifts that God, by his Holy Spirit, has empowered his church to serve one another in love. He's listed those gifts as being varied and diverse. Uh, gifts like teaching and administration, mercy and miracles, healings, speaking in tongues, um, many gifts are listed. And then he's emphasized the fact that, um, that the gifts do not create a value system in the church. And so there's not upper-crust gifts and second-class gifts. Uh, There's no no gift in the church that is not needed. And there's no gift in the church that is essential enough on its own that all of the other gifts are no longer necessary. Um, He goes on and he basically says, so in using your gifts, this means a couple of things. The first thing he says is, let all of the use of the gifts when you gather together be for edification. In other words, all of these things from the mundane to the miraculous, if they're God-given, if they're operated in the Holy Spirit, their purpose is to serve the church in love, to strengthen the church. The second thing we saw last week is he says that when we gather, when we, when like we are today or when we gather in our homes, when the church gathers, it should be intelligible should be intelligible to one another because that's essential for that building up to happen if you don't understand what's being said like in the speaking of tongues and there's no interpretation then you can't participate which is part of why we gather together to participate um, in the body of Christ Uh, and it also needs to be intelligible for outsiders for people who just visit because God is speaking God is revealing himself the Bible is evidence and proof of the fact that God desires to be known. And so when we gather, we emphasize the intelligible because our God is intelligible. Not completely comprehensible, not like we can wrap a box around and explain everything, but we truly can know who he is because he's made himself known. The final principle that Paul gets to, his last application here is that the use of the gifts should be orderly. Honestly, That word orderly, I think, is something that's a little bit hard to get excited about, right? It reminds me of those who mistakenly believe that if you look in your Bible close enough, you will find cleanliness is next to godliness. I'll I'll just spoil that for you now. You won't, right? But we know these type of people who, what they're saying when they say cleanliness is next to godliness, they're saying, it's a religious value to me that things are the way they should be, right? Some of us may even resonate with that, and we get excited about Order. We get excited about flowcharts. We get excited about everything in its right place. But for most of us, we, we, we hear that that our church service needs to be orderly, and we go, well, that seems kind of self-evident. It, I mean, what's, what's the big deal here? In fact, it's worth pointing out that if the church in Corinth's primary problem was life but chaos, right? The gifts are evident. They're happening, but they're not happening with any organization, most modern churches, and I would lump us into this, we're more more likely to be on the opposite end, orderly but dead, going through the motions, having all of the pattern of ministry but none of the excitement, none of the life that was going on in the Corinthian church. It's intriguing to me in general that as modern, uh, modern Americans especially, we have this fant- fant- uh, fantastical relationship with the wild, right? We we think of the wilderness and the wild and, and breaking away from the order and the organized and the maintained and the controlled, we have this fascination with the wild. Somewhere between Tennyson, who saw nature as red in tooth and claw, we've now moved to this fantasy land where we, uh, where we get excited about uh, not just the great outdoors, but the ruggedness of the great outdoors, the escape uh, of the wildness. But it's worth remembering, it's worth remembering that one of the hindrances that unlike most societies we have today is that we're not exposed to creation very often. I mean, I know we live and breathe the same air as people in other places, but if you walk outside and you look around, beyond the buildings, there are incredible mountains, right? And when the sky is not polluted by our lights of our city, there is an amazing sky full of stars. Colleen um, shared yesterday about her art, and she mentioned in her father's art, he does landscape paintings, she mentioned that one of the things that she loved, or uh, he does landscape portraits and photography, one of the things that she loves about the outdoors and about her father's work in particular is that it was a reminder of her smallness, that's something that's easy for us to forget as, as urban people. So I want you to recognize that this love affair that we have with wildness may not be the whole truth. And here's, here's how I'll prove it, okay? When the book of Genesis opens, it says that the world was without form and void and God spoke, and then we have God creating over the course of the next six days. And what do you see in that creation? You see Order. He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the dry land from the water. He organizes and he says, reproduce according to your own kind. He says, this is the place for you to be. Here are the stars and the sun to govern the seasons, right? It's order. It's organized. And God looks at all of that order and he says, it is good. Okay. In fact, if we're honest and we use a wide enough lens, we'll recognize that order and life actually go together. It's chaos that is destruction, right? Look at cancer in your body. How does cancer work? Cancer is when there's no longer any order in the way your cells are operating. There's no longer any communication, and the cells become self serving. Wildness is not necessarily a sign of life, there has to be some sort of organization. Do you know how much math we've discovered in nature? We have all of these theorems that work on paper and then we look at the way a tree grows and we're like, oh, this is just a huge equation, right? We zoom in through the microscope and what do we find in the cellular tissue of of a green leaf? We find a pattern, an extensive, repeated, consistent pattern. Order and life go together. You need three meals a day, not 13 some days and two other days, right? There has to be routine and regularity, that's where healthy life comes from, okay? And so when Paul is talking about order here, he's not just saying, hey, you guys need to put a lid on it. He's not just saying, you need to restrain this because it's weird. He's saying, you're using this in a way that is not healthy. It's not productive. Creation starts with order, but it also ends with order. And I think that's an important point as well. One of the best ways to understand any given passage in the Bible is to be able to plant it through the great plan of what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. And for this particular passage, we don't have to turn that far. Um, Before you open your Bibles, just listen to what Paul says in our next chapter that we'll start next week, 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection. And so here in this passage, he's talking about where Jesus is headed, where the world is headed, what the consummation of all things will look like. And this is what he says. He says, um, speaking of Jesus here, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him, Jesus, the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection, the father, that God may be all in all. Okay. Now I know the repeated refrain in that is subjection and clearly that implies submission, but it also speaks of order. Basically the verses that I've just read, you said part of the problem with the world is it's in disarray. That like Planets rotating around a sun and then a seismic shift in the sun. All the planets are in chaos, right? The, the natural orbit of gravity has been dis, uh, put out of proportion. And so when Jesus is exalted and put back at the center, it rightly reorganizes reality. Okay? That's what he says here. Jesus' goal is order. Okay, and so God creates the world in order, something goes sideways in the fall, and that brings back into the, into the milieu of our lives, chaos and disarray, and where Jesus is heading is putting things back the way they should be. Okay. With that, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, you'll find one just tucked in the back of a pew nearby, you're welcome to use If you look at the index in the front, you'll find that 1 Corinthians is one of the epistles in the New Testament. And once again, we'll be in chapter 14. I don't want to disparage nor defend trigger warnings. But I also don't want you to feel like I trapped you this morning. So I want you to recognize that I know what we're about to read, and it is going to say I do not permit a woman to speak in church, and we will address that today. But I promise it's not a trap, okay? So chapter 14, I want to pick up today in um, verse 26. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church." Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit this morning, because you promised that your spirit would instruct us in the truth of your word. Remind us of the things that you said. Connect your word with our hearts. And so I pray that you would be speaking, and by the power of your spirit, we would be listening this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the others. This passage, at first glance, has that feel. It almost sounds like um, Paul is so bigoted that he has bigot Tourette's, and he just has to address this somewhere, so he just throws it in here. But before we look at what's actually going on in this passage, we have to recognize two difficulties this morning that stand in the way of understanding it. The first is right here. It's in us. It's in us as a culture. We can only hear these words one way. Let me just explain something that scholars have come to realize about you as a reader. You are not objective as a reader, period. It doesn't matter what you pick up. It doesn't matter if it's the Seattle Times or a comic book or the Bible itself. You have a predisposed understanding of yourself, of whatever you're about to read, of of the world as you know it, and you never take those things off when you read something. You cannot be objective when you read. Now, that's not a death sentence in understanding. The way theologians and, uh, and scholars talk about this is they call it the hermeneutical circle. And so who you are is the lens you read anything through, the lens you hear any communication through. But then, as long as the circle is completed, that communication reshapes and reforms who you are. Okay? So the danger of this is that you would make one side of that the filter and not allow the process to continue. Okay? So part of the problem is, is in us. When we hear this, not only does it ring untrue against normal and natural values of our time, but also the words that are spoken and the way they're spoken here, we can only place in the mouth of a particular type of person a particular type of person that we don't generally like, right? When we hear these things this way, there's tone that we read into the text. When we hear things this way, there's um, satirical imagery that we picture, you know, aprons and these types of things that go into the imagery. The hardest thing in reading the Bible is allowing it to speak loud enough to hear what it's saying for itself, So the first problem is with us. You have to to listen and not assume you already know. But the second problem is with the text itself. Everybody, no matter where they come out on this particular issue, agrees that this is a difficult text to understand. It's for a couple of reasons. Um, First off, there's the fact that it seems like a direct contradiction of what Paul himself has written just a few chapters earlier. So, back in chapter 11, Paul is talking about prophesying, just like he is here, and he says that women should prophesy as long as they don their head covering, whatever that is. Okay? But nonetheless, here he says they should be prophesying orderly in an appropriate manner, and here he says, I don't allow any women to speak in church. Now, I don't know about you, but I assume that Paul remembers what he wrote. And remember that he didn't write chapter 11 on a Tuesday and come back and write chapter 14 on a Friday, right? Most likely, he wrote this letter in a single sitting, okay? Second thing that's difficult about this passage um, is that it seems so sudden and unrelated to what goes on around it. It just, like I said, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. It's like Paul realizes the section's coming to the close, and he's like, oh, and I want to do this one other thing, and he just throws it in there, okay? Okay. So, if we are going to understand this text, we have to do a couple of things. One, we have to hear it for itself. Two, we have to hear it in a way that's, that makes sense where it is, right? This is not on the, on the little piece of paper that comes in a fortune cookie, thank goodness. What a surprise that would be. It's in the context. It has, it has relationship. Um, and then the last thing is, it should be consistent with not only what Paul says elsewhere, but what the Bible says as a whole. I don't know how thrilled you are about this particular text this morning, but it's tremendously good at illustrating how we understand the scriptures because it forces us to play by the rules, okay? So with that being said, with all of those introductions, um, I want to go back to the beginning in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one as a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So he starts here and he says, now, when you all come together, everybody has something to add. And when we read that at first glance, it sounds like a neutral statement, like he's just describing the reality. He's actually concerned that everybody feels the need on every time they gather to to have some visible active part to play. Okay, imagine what this would be like even in a church of our size, that each and every person just lines up along the stage and everybody, one sings a song, another reads a psalm, another gives a teaching, another speaks in tongues and gives an interpretation, right? We'd be here for a long time. And all he's pointing out is if this is what's happening in the church in Corinth, their priorities are skewed, right? It's become a spiritual gift talent show right? It's become something where everybody needs to participate, so everybody gets a medal of participation. He says they've forgotten the whole reason why they gather, which is so collectively we will be built up. And so he says this happens, but he says let everything be done for building up. He questions their motive. And so I'll just say it once again that when we come, our goal should not only involve us. Not only should we not come to church and say, I'm coming to be fed, to be served, to get what I need. I'm coming for whatever it is. We can list a bunch of things, the worship, the sermon, whatever it is, and reduce it down and say that church is ultimately just consuming good Christian stuff, and I am in this role a consumer. Paul says, no, you're part of the body of Christ. But it's also a mistake to say, I'm coming to be I'm coming to do, I'm coming to show everybody that I am this type of person or, or to use my gifts, you know, to see yourself as essential to church. One of the greatest lessons you can learn in your life is from a Christian perspective, God doesn't need you. Remember this whole world that we lived in? He didn't consult you before he built it, right? And he's had it running before you were born. And when your family and friends bury you, the world will continue without you. And to some degree, that's true of the church. There's another sense where we absolutely need you. The body is deficient if it's missing a single part. But in the broader sense, none of us is the essential ingredient that keeps this church running. And that includes me. And I'd be terribly disappointed if I die tomorrow and you guys don't gather the following Sunday. Okay? So when we put those two together, it's not about what you bring to the church and it's not about what you get from the church. The alternative that Paul is presenting is it's about collectively the whole community when we gather in the size that we gather, okay? So what serves the greatest number of people when we come together? And he says for that to happen, there needs to be order. Um, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel as a movement um, in Costa Mesa, California, uh, his services were about 1,000 to 1,500 people. Even their relatively large sanctuary never would hold in in their glory days all the people, and so they had created these grassy hills outside and speaker systems so people could sit outside beyond the sanctuary. And so he added a rule to the understanding of speaking in tongues that's presented here that I think was relatively wise. He said, we're too big even for tongues and interpretation because nobody will hear either of them, right, if it's in this room, the size of a gymnasium, and somebody speaks in tongues and there's an interpretation, it may be of great benefit to the 50 people in every direction that can hear them, but for the whole room, it's just something quietly you can barely hear in the corner. He understands what Paul is talking about here, okay? So after laying out this principle, then he he starts to walk through tongues and prophecy and talk about how to do this in an orderly way, That benefits people and he deals with uh, tongues first verse 27 if any speak in a tongue let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret okay so he says a couple of things here first notice the word any he doesn't say when you speak in tongues he says if you have to if there's a speaking in tongues if this is something that you're going to make part of your gatherings this is the way it has to be done right, he doesn't say it should be done, he doesn't require it to be done, he says if you're going to do it, do it in this way, okay, he allows tongues to be a part of of the church expression, but he's already made clear in the chapter earlier that he would rather just speak clearly in a tongue that everybody understands, he said I'd rather speak five words that everyone understands than 10,000 in a tongue, okay, he says, if this is something that's important to you, at least make sure you do these things. And so what does he say? First off, he says that it shouldn't be the majority of what's going on when you gather. He says, it, at the most, three. Two people, maybe three maximum is what he says here. And he says, and let there be an interpreter. Okay? In other words, as he's already said in the chapter prior to this, the gift of tongues is not to be used in a community setting unless it comes with the gift of interpretation. Although you may be able to worship God in a language you never learned and it can be beneficial and edifying to you and encouraging, it's of no value to the rest of the church if they can't understand what you said and say amen, right? We're to participate. And so he says, if there's not an interpreter, what does he say in verse 28? If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. He says it's great that you have the gift of tongues and you should use it regularly. Earlier in the chapter, he says, I speak in tongues more often than any of you, right? In other words, he says, for myself, personally in my life, I value this gift and I use it all the time, but I never use it with others, okay? And so what he says here is, if there's no one to interpret, keep it to yourself, do it quietly. You know, the first time I ever heard the gift of tongues used, it was just that way. It was in a gathered meeting, but I overheard somebody whispering in tongues. And I was a relatively new Christian, so I did not know what that was, okay? Um, But he understood these principles. And if it weren't for the fact that I was relatively near him, I would have never known that he operated in this gift at all, okay? Um, But I want you to notice here that he says, just because you have the gift, you don't have a license to speak in tongues, in any occasion, for any reason. And so he says, if there's no interpreter, let them be silent. If two or three have already been spoken, hold your peace till next Sunday. Okay? Now he continues on in verse 29, and now he turns to the gift of prophecy. Now Paul's already made clear that he values prophecy greatly in the gathering. And just to remind those of you who have come and to explain to those of you who are visiting or joining us for the first time today, the gift of prophecy is speaking the word of God in a way that connects with where you're at right now. As I said last week, you can tell the gift of prophecy because when somebody says this word aloud, people go, hmm, right? It connects. It's not necessarily a new revelation, although sometimes it is. A lot of times it's just a relevant revelation, It's something that God has already said, pertinent to his character and his plan, and it connects right with what you needed to hear today. And I would agree with Paul that we need that to be operating in our church, that we need to hear the word of God spoken. We need to recognize that God still speaks today, and we need to recognize that he wants to speak into your life where it's at, okay? Um, But nonetheless, he gives rules. And so what does he say? He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And so the first thing he says is, once again, have, have some prophets speak, just a couple of them, okay? He, he maintains it. I want you to recognize that what Paul lays out here is not the sum and total of why we gather at church, right? There's all these other things that he doesn't mention here that we know were a part of the early practice of the church, Okay. Uh, The public reading of scripture, for example, isn't mentioned here, although it's mentioned repeatedly in the New Testament as part of what churches do when they gather. In this passage right here, he doesn't mention the singing of songs, even though he exhorts both the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae to do it, okay? He's not giving an exhaustive church service order, he's dealing specifically with these gifts in the context of that order, okay? And so, in a sense, By saying two or three and two or three, he's saying the focus is elsewhere. There should be room for the gifts when you gather, but make, you know, but these other things are focal, they're central, they're what the um, main point is. But what he says is, second, not only should two or three prophets speak, but he says, let the others weigh what is said, okay? One of the things about language is that words get used in a variety of ways, Sometimes words aren't even the same word even though they sound the same. So when I say the word grill, you don't know without any context if I'm talking about a barbecue, the front of a car, you getting in my face, right? All of those are possibilities, on top of that, even words that are closely related because they're really the same word sometimes function in a technical sense and sometimes function in a non-technical sense. So like when I say White House, I may be talking about the house that's somehow near us that we can both see as white, but I also might be talking about the White House, right? That's the problem we have with the prophets and with the gift of prophecy. When we look at how it's used as a word across the scriptures, there are the prophets, like we wrote the Bible prophets, okay? There are also, uh, there are also negative prophets, false prophets. Uh, even when um, a girl that Paul meets who's uh, possessed by the devil and is telling fortunes, it says that she prophesies, okay? So the word is used relatively broadly, and what we recognize here is that the gift of prophecy that Paul envisions for the church is not like the thus saith the Lord prophets of the Old Testament. What does he say here? He says when a prophet speaks, it needs to be weighed. The word means here it needs to be sifted. It's not to just be swallowed and go, okay, well, that's what the Lord said. This is who I am now. This is what I should do. What he recognizes here is that the prophets aren't ultimate and they have to be filtered. And if you read through the rest of the passage, I'll probably forget to touch on this. So I'll just point it out now. He gives some pretty good litmus tests for how to discern. Does it line up with the apostolic witness? What does he say? If a prophet doesn't agree with me in these things, he's not a prophet and you should ignore him, right? And so the New Testament and the Old Testament become a filter of these things. Um, confirmation in the rest of the church becomes a filter in these things. Four times in the New Testament, Paul quotes the Old Testament and saying, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let it be established, right? That's this context. That's the concept. And so he says here, give room for prophecy, but prophecy needs to be tested. It needs to be weighed. It needs to be considered. Do you see how there's an order of conduct with prophecy? And it's not as simple as hear and obey. It's hear, vet, and obey. Okay? He recognizes here that prophets aren't infallible. Which actually I find to be a little bit insur- assuring, not just because people tell me stuff, uh, but also because in my own operation in the gifts, there's this fallible component. Some of the things that I've taught in the past were not accurate, right? I'm growing in my understanding of the scriptures just like the rest of you are. And so just, the, just because I am operating in a God-given gift of teaching doesn't mean that I have become somehow perfect. And it's the same with the prophets. So he says here, prophecy must be tested. Order. And so, what does he say in verse 30? If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now, he means this in one of two ways. Either he's saying, if a prophet is speaking and another realizes that he has something to say, that he should, you know, tug on the shirt tails of the first guy and then he should be quiet and the guy should continue. The idea there would be then that that the Holy Spirit's not going to interrupt himself, right? What he's trying to avoid is all these people simultaneously speaking you know, and, and it being chaos and confusion. I think a better reading of this verse, though, is not if somebody realizes somebody else has something to say, they should be quiet, but actually, if somebody has something to say, they should wait until the first is finished. That's another way to read this verse. He says, let the first be silent. In other words, wait until he stops speaking, okay? And so once again, the concern here is order, Uh, And what does he say in verse 31? For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. In other words, he says if there's overlap, not everybody's going to hear it. Not everybody's going to be encouraged. So one at a time, please. Okay. Now, I want you to notice he has one more thing that he wants to say here. And it's an important one. It underlays everything he said so far. Verse 32. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What is he doing here? He's recognizing that some people are going to say, but I can't help it. They're going to say, haven't you read Jeremiah? It's like a fire in my bones, and if I try and speak, I can't help it, so I'm just going to blurt it out. And he says, no, no, that's not how it works. He says, even though this is a God-given thing, even though it involves something that you can't do and is by definition miraculous, God has given it to you in a way that you can control it, okay? He says the spirit of the prophets, and I think he would include the spirit of tongues here, is subject to those people. Okay? And so what he's basically saying here is that an aspect of how we use our gifts is self-control. Okay, now I want you to notice that he's laid out two principles of order. One is having ability doesn't determine the right to use it in every setting. And the second is... um, uh, the, the second is, self-control is an aspect of this, okay? So these are the two things he says. Now, it seems, uh, when, and he roots it, last point here, verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He roots this reality in who God is, Okay. He doesn't say because it's weird. He doesn't say because I don't like it. He doesn't say because it offends other people. He roots it directly in the character of God. And he says the way that you use God's gifts empowered by God's spirit should reflect who God is. In fact, we can go through the whole passage and that's all we've talked about, right? Why should our use of the gifts when we gather be edifying? Because God is love. And so we reflect the character of Christ in our use of gifts or we're not using the gifts rightly. Why is it that our gifts should be used with a goal of intelligibility and understandability understandability to the church and to outsiders? Because God desires to be known. Because Christianity is a verbal proclamation of the truth of who God is. And why should we do things decently in order? Because God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of confusion, but instead of peace. Now, he'll use the word order, but I don't know about you. When I read this, I expect order to be the last word of the sentence. Instead, he says peace. Why? Because God isn't just order, right? There is an order that goes along with death. Like, I'll be honest, if you die, your house will not get worse, right? Your, your, your room won't get messier. You no longer decay your environment. But death may lead to cleanliness, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily point to life. Cleanliness doesn't... to life. In fact, fact, what's the word we use to express the most clean you can think of? Sterile. Sterile means without life, okay? But when he says peace here, he's talking about thriving life. We can view this in nature. If you let a tree or a plant or a shrub, anything that bears fruit to its own, it will bear fruit. But one of the incredible ways about the way God designed the universe is that by pruning and by taking care of and investing and creating order and, you know, putting up fences to protect it from damage from animals and doing all these things, you get a better yield, right? Even the wild wilderness life can do better if we proactively take care of it. And it's the same with your life, right? What does in shape mean? In shape means order. It means that you have practiced good practices with your body order okay and so when he says peace here he, he's calling up the Jewish idea of shalom of everything not in its right place but everything as it should be okay and that's who God is God is orderly but not a machine God is orderly because he is the principle of life he is thriving he is perfect he is full of life now, he moves on here, and he speaks, and he says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are permitted, uh, not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. At first glance, this looks like a change in topics. But we have good reason to believe that that's not the case, okay? And the first one is because when we get to verse 36, he's clearly talking about everything he's already said. His conclusion hasn't happened yet, okay? And so he says, exhibit A, tongues. Exhibit B, prophecy. Exhibit three, women in church. And then he says, if you don't accept these things, and he presses against the attitude uh, in that church. Second, in all, in the first part that we just read about tongues and prophecy, and in this part, we find the same verbiage, specifically in two words, submission or subject, and silence, He says, here's when tongue speakers should be silent. He says, here's when prophets should be silent. And now he says, here's where women should be silent. In the same way, he says that the spirit of the prophet or the spirit of the tongue speaker is subject to the prophet. And now he brings back that idea of subject again. Okay. Now, when we try and understand a difficult passage, there's a few things that you should keep in mind. The first is immediate context. How does this fit in what's being said? Okay? Except in rare occasions like the book of Proverbs, stuff doesn't happen in a void. Like I said, it's not the paper on the inside of a fortune cookie. It doesn't stand alone. And so we're already seeing a hint that there's something in the context here that will help us what's being understood. Understood. Second, second, there's the broader context. Okay, And so we know, before we even answer it, what does this mean, what it can't mean. It can't mean that it's ever or never appropriate for a woman to speak in church because just a few chapters ago just a few paragraphs ago higher up in the letter that Paul has written he's just talked about a place where it's totally appropriate for women to speak in church third okay so that's immediate context that's broader context and we can widen it out even further and just say what do we see in the rest of scriptures okay we believe that the bible is not just a book written by men not merely that even though it is that but also a book overseen and spoken by God himself. And so we should anticipate then unity. The reformers and the church before them, the Catholic church referred to this as the analogy of faith or the analogy of scripture. It means that the best commentary on scripture is scripture. And so when we look at how women operated in the church more broadly in the New Testament and how women operated in the history of Israel, that should inform our understanding of this. We take what is clear and we use it to inform what is obscure. So for example, Paul commends Phoebe the deacon who carries the letter to the Romans, what we know as the book of Romans. Okay, so she's a deacon. She has a role in the church. He constantly commends co-workers in the gospel who are women, who are proclaiming and speaking the word of God and bringing people to Jesus, working right alongside of him, people he calls my co-workers, my co-laborers. In the book of Romans, he talks about Junia, who is either regarded as one of the greatest of the apostles or regarded greatly by the apostles. The grammar's a little bit difficult. Um, But either way, either way, he commends her for his work. And the idea of the apostle there is that she saw the risen Lord Jesus and proclaims that reality. She's a witness, okay? Um, There is uh, Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple. And in the book of Acts, they come across Apollos, who's also mentioned in this letter in 1 Corinthians, and Apollos is preaching boldly and profoundly, but his understanding of Christianity isn't exactly right. And it says specifically that Priscilla and Aquila, the woman's name first, took him aside and explained to him the things more rightly. We've already read through the list of the gifts of of the spiritual gifts, and he doesn't designate them for here's the women gifts and here's the men gifts. None of them. That includes the gifts of leadership, of administration, of teaching, of mercy. They're, they're ungendered in their presence. He doesn't mention that at all. But when we take all of that, you still have to say this has to mean something. It still must mean something. It can obviously not mean any of those things, but it must mean something. In fact, if there's any passage that uh, makes me more nervous in trying to explain away, which is a little crazy, I'll grant you, it's this one. And this is why I say that, because what does he do next? Listen to what he says next. After saying this, he says in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came or are you the only ones that is reached? In other words, he says, do you get to determine the truth of how things should be? Are you the one who proclaimed for the first time the word of God? He says, are you the only church and so you can shape what church looks like? And then what does he say next in verse 37? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now, he's not just talking about what he says about women here. In fact, I would say he's not just talking about the la- what we've covered today. He's saying, everything that I've said, I've given you from the command of the Lord. Paul was appointed as an apostle of Jesus Christ to plant churches, proclaim the gospel, and, and lay out the apostolic witness, okay? And so, when he says this, it's very nerve-wracking to me to try and relegate that to be unimportant and still be able to uphold the other half here's a problem with poking a hole in the bible it's kind of like a ship you poke one hole and you you lose your faith you know the integrity of the whole thing either the bible is the word of god or it's not and there's not a lot of room for gray area in that and if we're left with a bible that's not the word of god it can't be almost the word of god Right? We're not left with, well, all of these things must be true, but this is a place where it doesn't speak truth because who then becomes the authority? We do. And then you just create God in your own image. But what does it mean? Once again, we need to go back to context. We know that Paul's not saying that women can never speak in church, but what could he possibly mean here? What was he just talking about? Prophets and prophecy. Okay. Now, even that, in chapter 11, he says that women can prophesy, although they need to do it in a particular way. So he's not saying here that women can't prophesy, so what are we left with? There's really only one option. He has not just mentioned the operation of the gift of prophecy in the public gathering, but the weighing of those prophecies. That seems to me to be clearly what Paul is talking about here. Now, I could show you the structure. Because Paul is a very organized writer. And so he says, here's the things I'm going to talk about, A, B, C. And he goes, now A, then B, then C. And he clearly does that here. Okay, And so he's already talked about how prophecy should be handled. One or two at a time. Don't interrupt one another. And now he talks about the weighing. Okay? And he makes a restriction here. He says, I do not... Or what does he say? He says, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, notice that it says right before this as in all the churches. It is possible, because Greek grammar doesn't have punctuation, that that's the end of the sentence before and not the beginning of this one. And it's a hard reading either way, because either you have something very redundant, which is this, as in all the churches of the saint, the woman should keep silent in the churches. Does that sound weird? To say the churches twice? It does, okay? But if it's the end of what came before it, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saint's, it's not necessarily a better reading. Wait, why would you have to say that God is consistent in all the churches? It seems self-evident. So, either way, though, you're not going to remove the word the churches from when he says a woman should keep silent in the churches, right? The reason why I bring this up is some will say, look, Paul is giving very specific instructions to a very specific church that isn't talking to the rest of the church. This shouldn't be universal, And they usually come up with an idea like this. Maybe there was a crazy heresy. In fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll find one that was blowing through the church and women were the primary teachers of it and he wants to deal with that problem. I want you to recognize that that makes Paul a sexist. Okay? Because he either silences all women because of a couple of bad eggs just to deal with the problem or, and recognize this, When has there ever been a heresy in the church that was only something women believed? Or he only silences the women and leaves the men to themselves. Okay? So I know you think that I'm the one with the sexist point of view this morning so far. I haven't gotten to the understanding of the passage. But that alternative doesn't work for me. It doesn't satisfy me. Not to mention the fact that he says churches plural. Not to mention the fact that he says the problem with the Corinthian church is not unique to them, but that it's unique when they should be like everybody else, okay? So the second thing we need to notice here is he says the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. And so he ties silence to subjection. I know we don't like the word submission. I know we don't like the word subjection, okay? But I also want you to recognize that we just read it in 1 Corinthians 15 when we started about Jesus, It says that everything would be put in subjection under the feet of Jesus, except for God the Father who he would be in subjection to, and when that is reordered, what happens? God will be all in all. Everything will be as it should be, okay? When we use the word submission, we suffer from the same problem that I mentioned earlier. You have a preconceived idea of what that word looks like. You have to be able to hear it fresh for the first time. And the hardest part about the text that we're going through this morning for me is that this issue is not the main issue. So we really don't have time to talk all about everything else. Listen, whatever this means this morning, this is not the only thing the Bible says about women, okay? Paul has a lot of other things to say, and remember it's Paul that says in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female so we have to listen to the whole witness but for this morning I just want to get you to a clear understanding of what the text must mean and then lay out a couple of applications so what he says here is I do not allow them to participate in the weighing of the prophecy and he says but they are to be in submission as the law says so he says the Old Testament says this if you go looking you won't find a quote that says women should be in submission when we gather, or to their husbands. That stuff is missing. What he's clearly pointing to here is the book of Genesis. And here's why I know that, okay? For one, because just a few chapters ago, he already spoke about these things, prophecy, men, and women, and he pointed to Genesis, okay? Second, this is the only occasion in the entire New Testament where Paul doesn't say, as the law says, and then quote it. So the most likely reason he doesn't quote something here is because he just brought it up okay? He's not just referring back to the Old Testament, he's referring to what he's already said in the book of 1 Corinthians. So what was it that he quoted there? First, what it's not. It's not Genesis 3 when it says uh, that a woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. There are those who wrongly believe that that is a command from God. It is clearly not. It is a recognition of the breakdown of human relationships, okay? When it uses the word rule there, it means to dominate and to domineer and abuse. It is not a positive term. He's recognizing because of sin, because of this division that happens between Adam and Eve, the tendency of men towards women will be domination, and that is not a good thing, okay? But when you go back to the same place Paul goes every time, the same place Jesus goes every time he talks about gender and sexuality, it's Genesis chapter 2. It's the creation of man and woman. And what he says in chapter 11 is that the man was formed and then the woman was formed from him and for him. He says that relationship as it was intended had order. But I want you to recognize this morning that we already can explain away some misunderstandings that are really easy. When he said that tongue speakers should be in silent in church, was that because they didn't have the ability? No. So when Paul says this, it's not because women are unable to do these things. Is it a value assessment? Is he saying that women are inferior? No. In the same way that he didn't say that a prophet who shares and another one who doesn't share, one of them is inferior. In fact, he's already made a huge case that the whole body in value is equal, that women are essential to the church because everybody is essential to the church. When we go to 1 Corinthians 15 and we say, see Jesus subjected to the Father, does that mean that they are unequal? Is Jesus any less God than God the Father? Does it mean that he's less valuable? Does it mean that he's less capable? No, it means that there's order. There's order in the Godhood themselves. There's the Father and the Son. And you might say, well, yeah, but he was only the Son when he was sent. I, I mean, I understand when he became a man, he humbled himself and became a servant. But you can't say that that's innate to the Godhood. Jesus was still sent. Before there was a birth, before there was an incarnation, Father sent the Son. There's still an order there. But it's not one of value, and it's not one of ability. It's something else. Okay? And what he says here is that there is an innate order in male and female relationships, and in, in the Bible it only talks about two places, the family and the church that represents, that recognizes, that operates as a family. Deborah was a judge, a civil leader, the equivalent of a mayor or a president. She was leading the people of Israel. The Bible gives no negative commentary on it. She was also a prophetess. In fact, in the Old Testament, you will find many women prophetesses, plural, uh, but you will find no women priests. And in the New Testament, you will find women doing absolutely everything except for the office that today we know as pastor. And it has to do with these gender relationships as God designed them. Like I said, I wish we had time to talk about all these things. I promise you I have more answers than I've been able to give this morning. I have more understanding than I've been able to show. I've been working at this a long time, and I'll give you one more promise. This fall, we're going to do an entire series on gender and sexuality that I've been preparing for for two years, okay? I know these things are big. I know that they're difficult. I know they've been misunderstood, and I found those misunderstandings in myself as well. But we don't, that's not the point today. The point that I want you to get is twofold, okay? One, that God is a God of order, And so there is a way, not just things, not just raw materials that God has given us, but a way to rightly use those raw materials, a context and a structure, okay? And so that includes, when we gather, doing it in a way that has order to it, not that denies life, not that denies the spontaneity of a living, breathing spirit of God that's active in the church, but one that does harness that for the benefit of all. In the same way, he's interested in the relationships as God designed them between men and women to maintain that God-given order. And I know I haven't given you enough to know that that's a good thing, but I want to point out the obvious to you, that if God is good and if these things, gender roles, are God-given, then they're for our benefit and not our harm. And let me add to that 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 doesn't excuse or explain away or understate the abuse. In fact, I better finish here just to make this clear. The Bible constantly calls those in a particular spot of order to subjection. It recognizes that, but it never calls the lower aspect of that to do that without calling the higher aspect to lay down their rights, right? So when we look at marriage, yes, it says women should be in submission to their husbands. It also says that that men should lay down their lives like Jesus did, okay? It never says a king can do whatever he wants. In fact, the Bible says something that's tremendously unique. It says even kings are sinners. And so we need to vet it. We need to watch out for it. We need to have checks and balances. Democracy is not necessarily a Christian idea, but it's built on Christian principles. At least American democracy is, because Greek democracy was not democracy. It was only for the male. It was only for the privileged. It was only for the rich and the landholder. But the American idea comes from the idea that we all are created in the image of God and have certain unalienable rights, right? Christian ideas. But recognize that. Recognize that the Bible is fully aware that what's wrong in male and female relationships from the male side is that they dominate, they destroy, they take advantage of, and they abuse. And it addresses that. It calls them to account for that. But it doesn't do it in a way that throws out the order entirely. C.S. Lewis says in a way that I think is intriguing, he says if the problem with the world and gender is a man's problem I'm not sure it will be fixed by a woman and I think there's a sense in that I think there's a reality in that but I also want to say this morning that I recognize I recognize that this is an issue that is not just controversial but it's personal for many of us we all have histories and stories that you brought into the room this morning that make these things hard to hear that make these things hard to believe. I might have had food poisoning last night, but I'm pretty sure my stomach's been a mess all night because of this text. And not just because I have to be the one to say these things. It's because I recognize the power, the power that goes into stating things, thus saith the Lord. The only subjection, the only submission that I'm actually concerned about today is subjection to God. God. That's what this text is emphasizing. That's where the focus is. And it's totally appropriate to recognize, I'm not sure this is understood right. I'm not sure I understand this. I'm not even sure I can obey this. But it's a different thing to say, I'm unwilling to know if this is the truth. I'm unwilling to give God the benefit of the doubt that maybe his ways are better than my ways. I'm unwilling to allow God to define his own terms because they've been so soiled by people I know who have abused these things. Paul says simply, and I'll put it this way, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it's reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And This is how he finishes. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. He says, pursue this gift. Seek to build one another up by speaking on God's behalf into one another's lives. And he says, and don't, don't, uh, what's the word he uses here? Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Be open to the gifts. And then he finishes and he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Why? Not just because God is a God of order, but because order brings life. I only read a chapter last night, but I really enjoyed it. Wendy Alsop has a brand new book out called Is God Good for Women? Or it might be Is the Bible Good for Women? I don't remember. I read it at like midnight last night. Um, It's really good, what I've read so far. Um, She's local. She's very smart. um, And I was encouraged by what I read. And I'd encourage you, if you want to look into these things further, to start there. And I promise you this fall, as a church, we'll walk through these things together. Let's pray. Father, I just I think we need to have a healthy fear against our own understanding. We need to be skeptical. Sure. We need to have doubts, but we also need to be skeptical of ourselves. We also need to doubt ourselves. We need to be open to the fact that we're blind that our culture is blind and we need to put ourselves under the scriptures and say, okay, show me what this means, teach me what this means and then recognize it in the broader context of who you are and what you're doing. You call men and women in the church to be like Jesus. So men are to lay down their lives for their wives. Pastors are to lay down their lives for the church. And women are to, to help and to serve. But those are not lower things. Those are things that Jesus did. When it calls the woman the helper in the book of Genesis, that word most of the time it's used is used of God. And the other times it's used, it's used of an army, the cavalry coming up and showing up and winning the war. It's not a low and diminutive term. And we have to con- confess, Lord, we're from a culture that doesn't value submission that overvalues authority and leadership and takes advantages of the privileges and rights of station. And we, we collectively are guilty of that. But your word calls that chaos too, calls that disorder too, and calls us to lay down our rights like Jesus did. I pray, Lord, that we would be a living church where life is thriving because it's really here, not a dead church, where everything is easy and orderly and not messy. But at the same time, I pray that we would collectively pursue health and order, and that we would reflect your good design and creation, that we would reflect your good character and orderliness, and we'd reflect our great destiny in the world, a new heavens and a new earth that will be as it should be. I pray this in your name. Amen. As we respond this morning and as we worship, communion is set, and feel free to come up and partake of it on your own timing if you're a Christian this morning. If you're not a Christian, the, um, the habit of us partaking of communion is to remember that Jesus, his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, that we are partakers of those things, and that our standing with God, that our life itself, it's nourished it's thriving it's it's on his on his work on what he's done um also if you're in need of prayer this morning Cindy's up here she'd love to pray with you I'd love to pray with you as well and let's just take some time and respond and for those of you who aren't there yet who just don't know what to do with this text that doesn't deny you a response a willingness to learn a desire to know for sure just the submission that says God, whatever is true, I want to know it, and, and I want to follow it, that is a work of God in and of itself, and it's something that can be articulated in prayer. It's something that can be embraced in, and so let's just find a way this morning as a church to respond.